Well, if you do have your Bible, go ahead and open to the Gospel of Mark. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a hardback around you. Go ahead and find that. It'll be on page 796. If you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that one home with you. But in doing so, you're promising to read it. So uh, we do want you to go home with it, but we want you to actually use it and uh, put it to work. And um, today, as we pick up where we have kind of left off in Mark's Gospel, I've titled today's message, Fruitless Trees. And this passage that we're going to look at, I think, has uh, extreme relevance to us today and to the situation where we find ourselves today. And we're going to see a miracle take place in this passage that we're going to look at from verses 12 through 25. A miracle, I think, is defined simply by saying that it's something that happens out of the ordinary, but it can only be explained by some sort of supernatural cause. Uh, that it's, it's something so extraordinary that there's no other way really to look at this. Now, this miracle is not a happy miracle. It is not a miracle that is a pleasant miracle. It's really the opposite of that. This is not a miracle that gives life or improves life. It's actually a miracle that does the opposite of that. It, it takes life. And the passage that we have in front of us it is actually recording two different events, but these two events are interpreted or understood, connected to one another. And this is why Mark writes it in this way. This passage is really so important for us today because we see what Jesus does with fruitless trees. What does Jesus do with fruitless trees? We witness what will come of people, of churches, of nations that are fruitless. When you read this account in your Bible, when maybe you've read this before, maybe you have, you've not seen really the truth that's here. And I think as we read this, as we talk about this this morning, it should leave us in a place of trembling at what is here. And hopefully you do not leave here thinking that, oh, that doesn't really apply to me. Surely that wouldn't happen to me or to my church or to my nation. My prayer for us is that we, as a church, as individuals, we would hear, we would see what Jesus would have to say to us as individuals, as a church, as a nation. So let's not waste a whole lot of time and jump in here to our text. We're going to look at this in three sections. Your Bible has probably split it up into three sections. The first section I've titled as the curse of the fig tree, which is probably very common to what your Bible has titled it as. And so the first section is verses 12 through 14. Now again, the, the context of this is where Jesus has come into Jerusalem, but first he went to Bethany, and now, uh, as we saw last week, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and now he's went back to Bethany. And so th this is the connecting point here uh, of why Jesus is here. It's for Passover, but it's really for his crucifixion. So in verse 12, it says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a distant fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, this is not a moment where Jesus gets angry and throws some sort of tantrum or some sort of fit because he was like some little kid that didn't get the kind of ice cream he wanted, and so he, he curses the tree. 
Like maybe your, your child would curse that cone because it wasn't dipped in chocolate or whatever. Jesus is not doing this. This is not the action of Jesus. He acts as he always does, and that is in perfect control of his emotions. He's in perfect control of the situation. He's in perfect control of, as we'll see, the fig tree. So Jesus goes to this fig tree to find what? This is answer time. Figs. That makes sense, right? You don't get apples from a fig tree. You get figs from a fig tree. So he goes because he's hungry. And then look at verse 13. What does it say? And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find, any, uh, find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. So the question that Mark gives us is, why? Why would Jesus go to the fig tree knowing that it's not the season for figs? Maybe you asked that question. Good question. Is Jesus unaware of the seasons? Is he unaware of agriculture and how this works? Is Jesus just kind of ignorant of, of how this plays out? And, and, you know, he was a carpenter. He wasn't really a farmer. And maybe that's the reason why he just didn't know. And, you know, none of the disciples helped him out. And he goes to this tree looking for something that is not really there. He's just kind of being dumb in this moment. Not at all. This is not at all what is happening. Jesus goes to this tree because the tree is doing something out of the ordinary. Jesus is not doing something out of the ordinary. The tree is doing something out of the ordinary. It has leaves as if it is producing fruit, as if it's producing figs. But there's nothing there. The fruit is missing. The fruit that should be produced has not been produced. Now, fig trees in the Old Testament, they've been used in, uh, in a lot of different passages, and they've been used to symbolize faithless Israel. Faithless Israel. We see this out of Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah. Also in Isaiah chapter 34, and also in Hosea 2, the fig tree is the object of judgment. Judgment. Now, pay attention to this as Jesus is going to physically display what God's word has been saying over centuries about fig trees, about a people. Jesus is going to curse this tree. Look at verse 14. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Notice that the curse, first of all, it was not a temporary one, but it was a curse that was indefinite. Ever eat from you again. This moment. It's not a parable through story. It's a parable through display. It's a physical parable. The disciples are witnessing, as it says there in verse 14, they heard what he said. There's no confusion about what Jesus said or who he was talking to. He was speaking to this tree. This moment, it is a parable for the disciples to see, for them to understand. And I think it's a demonstration of what's going to happen to Israel, what's going to happen to Jerusalem, what's going to happen to the temple. And the fig tree is the tree that will not produce fruit. And by all appearances, the tree looked like it should. The, the tree acted as if it was, you know, leafing out and having fruit, but then it was actually barren. All the outward appearances appeared as if it would have true, uh, uh, true fruit, but when you examine it closer, what do you find? No fruit at all. So Jesus, what does he do? He puts a curse upon the fruitless tree, which is... 
I think, a curse upon the temple and the nation of Israel, and I'll explain that. And by way of application to us today, this could be, I think, also a curse upon you, a curse upon our church, a curse upon our nation. Why? It's a curse upon us if we do not bear fruit. I think this is our point. This tree, it was promising one thing, but it did not produce what it promised, which I think is simply just the definition of hypocrisy, right? Promising one thing with your words, but never following it up with anything. This is, I think, what was happening with Israel. They were acting like this type of tree. The temple had become this type of tree. The leaders had become this type of leaders, displaying this like this tree. It was hypocrisy. Daniel Aiken, he says this. He says, hypocrisy always keeps company with self-deception. Hypocrisy always keeps company with self-deception. Whenever you are self-deceived, you, you're, you say this is true of you, but when evidence comes out, it's not proven that this is true. You're self-deceived. And so, for example, some people believe that they're doing what God has called them to do. You know, they've, they've heard from God. They've prayed about it. And they say, this is what God wants me to do, even though they're in blatant disobedience to God's word. This is self-deception. It's like saying that you, you love the Lord, but you really have no desire to be part of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. It's basically saying, well, I love Jesus. I don't really like his choice of bride, though. I don't really think he made a really good choice with those people. As if they could do a better job of choosing or if there are even better options out there. I think this is, this is foolishness, and this is hypocrisy. This is self-deception, and, and we so easily get sucked into that. This is what was happening here. When you, when I, when our church, when our nation is examined by Jesus, you will not be able to hide what is true about you. You will not be able to hide what is the reality of your heart, of your mind, of your soul, You might have fooled everybody else. You might have even fooled yourself, but you will not fool Christ. He knows you. Whenever he comes and he gives examination, he will also bring judgment upon that. And his judgment is inescapable. The disciples, they are witnessing this event. They're paying attention to what Jesus says. This is not a made-up mythical story about Jesus. This is not something... And that, you know, Mark comes in later and is like, oh, well, this would be kind of a fun story. No, this is a real event to portray something that's real and truthful about the moment of what Jesus is about to do. And this brings us really to the next section. This is in verse 15 through 19. And as your Bible probably titles it as Jesus cleanses the temple, I would say a better title would be Jesus curses the temple. Let's look at these verses. Verse 15 And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. 
Now, when this passage talks about Jesus doing this in the temple, don't envision in your mind like the temple building itself. That is not exactly what is being meant here. What's being meant is the temple complex, which is rather large. And so we call this the the cleansing of the temple, but I think what's really taking place is the condemnation of the temple, the cursing of the temple that's taking place. Jesus, he comes into the temple. Again, he's coming down the Mount of Olives from Bethany, and he's coming through the Kidron Valley back up the other side where the Temple Mount would be right off of that and into the Temple Mount. And in the Temple Mount, there's the complex that's about a 35-acre plot for the Gentiles. This courtyard that Jesus comes into and where this is probably happening is that 35-acre spot where the Gentiles would be kept out of the main shrine, the main area. And so Jesus, when he's doing this, is not inside of the temple building, but inside of this complex. Now notice something in verse 15. Notice that there's a mention of pigeons. You're like, oh, well, that's significant. Thanks, Pastor. Uh, Pigeons... I think of as rats with wings, right? They're everywhere. You can go anywhere in the world, and what do you find? Pigeons. They are everywhere. Now, what's the significance of a pigeon? Well, these pigeons, they were the the least or the cheapest animal you could bring for sacrifice. Essentially, what Mark is saying here in verse 15 is that what was being sold were the sacrifices of the poor, The poor could only afford these pigeons. And what was happening in this place is these people that were selling these and changing the money, they really had no respect, no reverence for this place, but really what they didn't have any respect or reverence for was the God of this place and how the God of this place would treat the poor. They were extorting these poor pilgrims. They were trying to get them to buy their goods, and they used extortion in order to do this. Extortion is not whenever you go to, say, an amusement park, and uh, you go to the counter to buy that, that soda, and they charge you $10 for it, and you're like, oh, this is extortion. That's not extortion. You chose to be there. Uh, you paid the money to get into the place, first of all, and uh, you didn't have to be there. So that's not technically extortion, even though it might feel like it. You didn't have to buy that. By the way, they will give you water for free. I think they have to. And so this is not what's happening in the temple. In the temple, there is really extortion taking place because these people have these people captive. They have no other options. They they have to come there. This is the only place that they can bring their sacrifices. And so what they would do, they would bring their animals, and then they would be not acceptable they wouldn't quite be spotless enough. They would be set aside and say, oh, well, that's not good enough. But we do have, conveniently, ones that are approved, ones that are acceptable. How about you buy from us? And so they would force these people to do this. Now, some estimate that the overcharging that was happening was about 16 times the normal rate. 16 times. Also, what was happening was that there was a certain currency that you had to have in the temple. And so this is where the money changers come in. And so the money changers were there because they wouldn't accept any kind of foreign currency. And so you would have to have your money changed. And in doing so, there would be a fee, a rather large fee. But this is how you could pay to get into the temple. These people had no other options. 
You know, all of what is taking place here, it's just, it's extortion, it's greed. And so what Jesus is witnessing, he is witnessing kind of a, a mob-run kind of situation where there's bribery, there's extortion, there's greed, there's dishonesty. And what is Jesus' response to all of it? It's righteous indignation. And what does he do? He drives these people out. Now, notice the language here that's used. It's the same kind of terminology that's used whenever Jesus drives out demons. The same kind of evil is present. The same kind of evil that was working people that are possessed by demons is at work here. It has just masked itself with something religious, religious practice, religious requirements. It looks as though it's good, it's right, but it's, it's really evil. It's greedy. It's dishonest. So in this scene, don't get caught up in the idea that, just is, that Jesus is some sort of crazed lunatic and he has just lost his mind. And he's throwing this tantrum and flipping over tables and yelling at people as if he is not in control. He has not lost control and he has not lost his cool. Notice verse 17, and I'll make the point here. Verse 17 says, And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? There's three things I want you to notice here. I think that they kind of show us that Jesus is not out of control or has lost his mind in some way. First of all being, he was teaching them. He was teaching them. He was not out of control, not out of his mind. He was capable of demonstrating his anger and his frustration and his rage, but not losing sight of the purpose. Not losing sight of what was obviously wrong. The system that was there, it was corrupt, it was broken, and Jesus was teaching them that it was. The second thing I think we see is that he teaches them what? The scriptures. He teaches them God's word. Jesus never separates himself or his actions from God's word. We never see this happening, and I don't think we see it here either. And so whenever we respond to people, whenever we talk about things that are happening, we should never separate ourselves from the scriptures. We should never get caught up in... And just an emotional action, but into what does God's word say? And then the third thing I think is interesting is what scriptures was he teaching? He was teaching them the scriptures, but what scriptures? There's two actually here that Jesus was referring to. First of all, Isaiah 56, verse 7. It says, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations. And then Jeremiah 7, verse 11 is the other passage where it says, But you have made a den of robbers. So let's look at each of these, and I want you to turn here. Isaiah chapter 56, starting in verse 3 through 8. And I want us to get kind of a fuller, uh, wider context of what this passage is about. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 3 through verse 8. I'll give you a second to catch up there. Verse 3. Isaiah 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give my house 
and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Mark, interestingly, interestingly enough, is the only of the gospel writers that includes this phrase in his passage, uh, all, for all nations, for all nations, which is really what Isaiah 56 is about, all the nations. These people, these Gentiles, they were excluded from the inner shrine of the temple. They were not allowed to go in there. But referring to Isaiah, Jesus is saying that there are others that are not of Israel that he will bring in to be the true Israel, which is exactly what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, which is the same thing that Jesus teaches in, Mark chapter, in John chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. In John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is passionate about his mission. And what is his mission? His mission is to call his sheep to himself. And those whom he drove out at this point, they were not sheep. They were wolves. They were preying upon the sheep. And I think this is just a glimpse of what we have of the good shepherd acting as the good shepherd. He comes and he fights for his sheep. And who are these sheep? It's of all the nations. In, I think, true biblical Christianity, and what we see out of Isaiah 56 and here in Mark 11, I think in true biblical Christianity, there is zero place for racism or discrimination based upon status. There's zero place for it if we understand what the Bible teaches. These were just some of the issues that made Jesus so angry. Some of the issues that, that caused him to, to get to this point. And this is, again, at the core of what was wrong. In Jeremiah, if you want to turn over to Jeremiah chapter 7, this passage is also helpful for us if we look at verses 8 through 15. Again, to understand the context of what Jeremiah is about, whenever Jesus gives the reference of 711, look at verse 8 of Jeremiah chapter 7. It says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You will steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when you called, 
you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house um, to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did in Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. With Jesus using this quote from Jeremiah, he is suggesting that God is going to do the same thing to what we'll see as the temple later. The same thing that he did to Shiloh. And if you know what Jeremiah 7 is referring to, the destruction of Shiloh. And what took place there. And why did this take place? Because of what is said here in Jeremiah 7. They, they did not listen to the Lord. They did not fear the Lord. The Jews looked to the temple as a place of security, regardless of what they might have done. And this is why Jesus says in verse 11 of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 7, that this is a den of robbers. It was treated, the temple was treated as a refuge of sorts for the lifestyle of these people. Their lifestyle where, you know, they would come to the temple to be absolved from their sin and then they would go back out and do all the shady things that they were doing before. Just like what verse 8, verse 9 of Jeremiah 7 talks about. They would come to this place where they thought they, they were demonstrating their faith, showing their faith, and then they'd go right back out and keep doing the things that were evil. The question is, is this how you treat your faith? Is this how you treat your church? Is this how you treat your religious practice? You come to get your Jesus fix and then you go on to the rest of the week doing your own thing. Again, committing similar sins like is listed here in Jeremiah 7. Only then to come back and, and have your sins absolved again because you were so sorry for doing them, but there has been no real repentance from your life. Understand that God will not be mocked. He will not tolerate a fake kind of faith. He will bring judgment upon it. And that is what is promised here out of Jeremiah 7. This is what Jesus is promising from Mark 11. Go back to Mark 11. As Jesus gives this, these, these two scriptures, these two things that he's teaching them, and I'm sure there's a lot more that he was teaching them, but this is the reference point for us. Of You've pushed out all these people that, that God wants to bring in and and you have created this place that is for evil. And then notice 18 and 19, the leaders of the temple, the Sanhedrin, they were in shock, weren't they? They were in shock at what they were witnessing. They were in shock of what was happening. They were paralyzed by fear. They didn't know what to do, but they did know one thing. They wanted to kill him. They hated him. They wanted to have Jesus executed, but they couldn't because they feared the crowds. I think this is a very interesting point, is that they did not fear God and the, the God that was in front of them, Jesus Christ, but they, they feared men. This is a dangerous place to be. I think we'll end up in a, in a similar place if we act in this way, if we fear men and not God. We'll be compromised like these people. Let's look at the, the final section that we have, verses 20 through 25, and this is the lesson of the fig tree. Look at verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, 
they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. They come back in the morning by this fig tree. They discover what? The fig tree has withered. The fig tree, it interprets what happened earlier, the day before in the temple. This real life parable of the fig tree It leads into really the main lesson that Jesus wants his disciples to get and for us to get this morning. He wanted them to understand that you must bear fruit. You must bear fruit. I think in a simple equation form, we can say faith equals fruit. If you have faith, you will have fruit. Figs will come out of your life. Symbolically, not literally. Faith, faith, this is what James talks about and, and people confuse that with what Paul's saying about that it's, it's, it's not by works, it's by faith and, and James and Paul, they're burning the same candle at different ends to get to the same point that if you have real faith in God, there will be fruit. The question is this, what kind of fruit? Everybody's producing fruit. Even you right now, you're producing fruit with how you're thinking, with what you're doing, with the notes that you're taking. You are producing a kind of fruit. So the question I want to pose for us this morning is, what kind of fruit? Well, how about this fruit? What about the fruit of humility? The fruit of humility. Is this being displayed from your life? If you've been with us through chapter 10 into chapter 11, you have seen this. In chapter 10, starting in verse 13, all the way through chapter 11, verse 11, What has been the overall theme of those verses? Humility, 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 humility. I think the question for us is, do I display that fruit? How about about today, this week, this year, as we've been going through this pandemic, how have you been treating others? Has it been with, with an arrogance or a pride in your heart, in your tone, in your words, because, well, that, that person doesn't agree with me, that I have the same views as me, that I have the same convictions as me, and so I treat them as less. That's not an attitude of humility. Treating people like that is kind of like the, like the crowds treating blind Bartimaeus. Just be quiet, sit down, don't bother. This is not what we should be doing. This is not humility. Jesus displays humility with blind Bartimaeus as stopping, as calling. This is what we should be doing, and this is what humility looks like. Being inconvenienced, having these kinds of conversations, and doing what what Gary has shared with us earlier about our words being sweet like a honeycomb. Do you have the fruit of humility this morning? Look at verse 22, the response of Jesus to what Peter says. Have faith in God. I think essentially what Jesus is telling his disciples, 
is even though I have cursed the fig tree, and I would say this is representative of Israel, of Jerusalem, of the temple, he says, continue to have faith. Continue to have faith. Even though this has been cursed, these people have been cursed, the temple has been cursed, have faith in God. Why is this? Because faith and prayer are the way to God, not ethnic Israel, not a pilgrimage made to Jerusalem, and not the sacrificial of the temple. Real faith. Real faith is demonstrated through prayer. This is the way to God. Verse 23 says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, this verse has been distorted and manipulated in a lot of different ways. And so have you ever heard a preacher say something like this of what is your mountain that you need to speak to this morning? If you have faith in God, your mountain can be ripped up and thrown into the sea. And and they try to use this verse as a text about the power of faith in God and, and also what you can accomplish if you have faith in him, which is not a wrong principle, but the application that they use is a bit overstated, I think. And so they might say things like, well, pray that your mountain is thrown into the sea. Well, I think this is missing the context of this passage, of this scripture. And when we miss the context, we will usually misapply the text. And this is not saying that literally you can pray a mountain will be popped up and then hurled over your head as it whistles over by and like, "Ah, well, my prayer of faith worked. This is not a literal thing that Jesus is talking about. And let me show you this. Verse 23 says, say to this mountain. Now, the idea of a mountain being put into the sea, it's not a new thing from Scripture. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 46, verse 2 says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. So this is not a new concept. This is not something new or something that these disciples shouldn't already know. But also out of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 Isaiah writes this, It shall come to pass in latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." So what is Isaiah referring to? Literal mountain or something else? He's referring to Zion, to Jerusalem, to a place. Not just a a mountain, but to a literal place. We we heard this also in Isaiah 56, verse 7, if you're paying attention. And in in these passages, we see that this, this mountain reference, it's not literal mountains, but kingdoms. Kingdoms. Kingdoms are, are constantly, frequently spoken of as mountains. We see this in, in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 24 and 25. It speaks of Babylon being this great mountain that God is going to destroy. So when the Old Testament speaks of mountains being cast into the sea, what is this reference point? A kingdom being thrown into judgment. The sea is that judgment that God is going to cast it into And this saying by Jesus is, again, very familiar, very similar to what we see out of Revelation. John's writing, Revelation chapter 8, verse 8, where it says, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. 
So again, let me just simplify this idea of what I think Mark eleven twenty three is teaching. A mountain equals kingdom. A mountain equals kingdom. Notice also how this is worded. It says, this mountain, this mountain. That is referring to what had just previously happened. Also, keep in mind, where are they? They're standing on the Mount of Olives. This mountain would be what mountain? The Mount of Olives? No, the one that they just came from the day before. Zion, Jerusalem, the temple. This mountain. I would say that with these other scriptures as a reference point, Jesus is speaking about the Temple Mount, about Jerusalem, about Zion. This is the place that he has cursed. Jerusalem is going to come under judgment of God. It is going to be thrown into the sea of judgment. It's going to be drowned in God's wrath. And I think we see this representative through history with the Gentile nation of Rome. So when you see this kind of language in the Bible... We should not think of this as, as literal, but symbolically representing kingdoms. Kingdoms coming under the judgment of God. And here with Jesus' words, I believe we see him referring to Jerusalem being the object of what he's talking about, being cast into the sea of judgment, which really fits perfectly with the example of the fig tree. This fig tree being cursed. It had all kinds of leaves, but it produced nothing. Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, it had all kinds of leaves, but it produced no fruit. We know from history that what Jesus was telling his disciples to do in these these verses here is exactly what came to pass in 70 AD with the Roman commander Titus as he came into Jerusalem and he wipes out the temple, destroys it, burns Jerusalem. There's a massive amount of bloodshed that takes place in the Jewish war from 66 AD to 70 AD, so much so that it would seem to be that Revelation 8.8 sounds a whole lot like what happened in the Sea of Galilee, where the Roman authorities came in and slaughtered so many people, they threw them into the Sea of Galilee, and it, it looked like a sea of blood. It seems to me that this judgment that Jesus was promising upon Jerusalem comes quickly into fulfillment with the war against Rome, God's judgment, it will come. It will come upon kingdoms. Possibly America, possibly the kingdom of this body, possibly your kingdom, if we do not bear fruit. So looking at the cursing of this fig tree, it's, it's a representation of Israel being cursed by Jesus. He tells his disciples to do something. What does he tell them to do? Pray. And to pray with an authoritative command. And this must be done in faith. And what is the prayer? That this kingdom, this mountain, that it would be picked up and thrown into the sea of judgment. And we see this in the starting of the war in 66 through 70. Also notice in verses 24 and 25, Jesus talks a lot about forgiveness. And talks about our prayers. That our prayers must be done in faith. Jesus tells his disciples to pray that God would take this mountain of hypocrisy, this mountain of self-deception, this mountain of greed, this mountain of, of depravity, and that it would be cast into the sea of judgment. He tells them to have faith in God's kingdom, that God's kingdom would overcome that kingdom. And again, looking at the size of the temple, the complex that was there, 
I'm sure maybe the disciples thought a lot like the Pharisees did whenever Jesus said that he would tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And they said, it took 40 years to build this temple. Only thinking of the physical realm and the physical world. Jesus is addressing something spiritual, but there will be physical consequences as well. It's the prayers of God's people that will bring about this destruction of this corrupt system. This corrupted place, these corrupted people. How will this happen? To the prayers of his people. The late missionary and author Andrew Murray, he writes this. Christ actually meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. And the neglect of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses in Christian and heathen countries. The power of the church to truly bless rests on intercession, asking and receiving heavenly gifts to carry to men. Murray understood something, that prayer is essential to the missionary work. Prayer is essential to the life of the church. It's essential to your life. And if we do not pray, I think we end up in a place where I think maybe we are today. Why are our churches declining in America? We do not pray. Why are our families crumbling? We don't pray. Why are our communities falling apart? We do not pray. Why is our country in a downward spiral? Because we don't vote right. No, we do not pray. This is the problem that we have. This is, this is what Jesus is meaning by pray that, that the work of God would move and uproot this mountain and throw it into the sea of judgment. Why? Because it's hypocrisy. Notice that Jesus emphasizes forgiveness in this passage. In verse 25, Forgiveness to others. It's a prerequisite to our prayers being answered. This is not a new teaching by Jesus. He taught this in Matthew chapter 5. True faith in God is following the commands of God. And those who, uh, and, and one of those is to give forgiveness and to seek forgiveness. We follow the command of God to forgive and to seek forgiveness. If we have no desire to forgive someone else, then it would seem to be that you are like this fig tree. You have a lot of leaves, but there's no fruit. If you have no desire to seek forgiveness from somebody that maybe you have offended, then again, it seems to be that you're like this fig tree. You have a lot of leaves, but no fruit. Real faith in Jesus Christ is full of fruit. Let me give you just a few things of what kind of fruit should be on your tree. The fruit of faith. Faith in God, trust in God, belief in God, belief specifically in Jesus Christ. The fruit of forgiveness should be there. Forgiving others, seeking forgiveness from other people. This should be a real fruit that is present in your life. Another is the fruit of humility. And with that, the fruit of compassion. Are these fruits evident in your life? Are they present? Are they there? I think some people have a distorted view of Jesus. They only want to see Jesus as this character that just meets the, the felt needs of people. And, and this is where the, the social justice gospel stuff comes from. Is that, well, Jesus is just all about healing people and giving food to people. And, and this is what we should be about. 
Well, that view of Jesus is really to the demise of their theology, and they reject this kind of Jesus. A Jesus who will curse one that does does not produce fruit. A Jesus that will not tolerate people or a nation or churches that act as though they are faithful to God, and they are not. They are just barren trees. Jesus will not accept hypocrisy like what we see here with the temple, like maybe what you are thinking of in your own life. Now there is a danger for you in this moment to want to look around the room at other people and say, well, if they were not like that, get the plank out of your own eye. Think about yourself. And this is why we're going to spend just a few moments in reflection to help you think about where you're at. Let me give you three questions here. First of all, are you like this fig tree? A lot of leaves, but no fruit. A lot of show, but nothing to show for it. Is your church like this fig tree? Are the churches in independence like this fig tree? Second question, are you able to forgive others that you've wronged, and are you able to seek forgiveness from those that you have wronged? Is this a fruit out of your life? And the third question, do you have the fruit of humility? Are these things evident in your life? As we transition this morning, I want to give you just a few moments and a reflection, and then we're going to move right into our time of the Lord's Supper. So let me give you just a few moments, and then our deacons will come in just a second. So spend some time in reflection and meditation, maybe note writing in prayer, to reflect upon what you've heard this morning.